0: And I'll encourage the rest of us to grab a Bible, and you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So my wife and I were coming up on uh, 12 years of being married, and so when we were engaged, um, we tried to find a place where we could do some premarital counseling, which I would recommend for anyone getting married. It's really good to just sit with another uh, couple and talk through some stuff, but we Time was short, and we couldn 't find a couple that wanted to commit to like doing sessions with us. but there was a church that was putting on a, a, like a one day Saturday eight hours you and you know forty other couples doing some premarital counseling with the instructor. Uh, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, uh, but we went, and it was fascinating at the beginning. So it's me and Molly and then, you know, 39 other couples there. And the instructor was like, I would just love to hear why you're, why you're all here. What brought you here? And I kid you not, every single couple said, our pastor is making us do this. Um, our priest won't marry us unless we do this. And just on and on and on and on, all around, all 39 other couples. So me being the nonconformist, well, why are you here? And I tried to be very, like, happy. And I'm like, I just want to invest in my future marriage. And they all, like, roll their eyes at me. (laughs) I don't have to be here. I want to be here, right? And we were not, we didn't make a lot of friends in that class. But uh, throughout the whole day, there were parts, you know, principles that, um, we could apply to our relationship. How do you like have a good fight? How do you fight well when you disagree? And you know, your finances and the family of origin that you came from, all of these things, different principles for marriage. And you know, it wasn't ideal that it was just a one day thing, but it actually helped us learn some principles that we could use to have a a healthy marriage. Um, In our study in 1 Corinthians, we're kind of turning a corner now, and in chapter 7, the tone shifts a little bit, and Paul is actually going to give some principles for Christian marriage. Um, In chapters 1 through 6, Paul has been addressing the sin and failures that the Corinthian church was uh, uh, a part of, but it, it seemed like they were kind of unaware of it, weren't they? Like, in chapters 1 to 6, Paul had to go, like, what are you guys doing? You're, you're, you're forming teams around the most popular teachers, and there's a guy who's uh, sleeping with his uh, stepmother, and you're just unaware of what's going. So Paul addresses sins and failures that the church just seemed to go, oh, we, we had no idea that that was wrong, or we didn't see it that way, Paul. And now in chapter 7, it's like Paul changes the tone a little bit. And he actually begins to address concerns that the Corinthians had written him about. Uh, Specifically in chapters 7 through 10, Paul is giving some direction and clarification in response to a letter that had been written to him. And so chapter 7 specifically, Paul dives into some principles for Christian marriage. He's going to talk about... uh, a married couple's sex life. He's gonna talk about celibacy for the unmarried. He's gonna talk about remarriage for widows. He's gonna talk about decisions related to divorce. He's gonna talk about decisions on whether you should get married or not at all. And so, what is really happening in chapter seven is Paul is gonna, he's answering a worldview problem the Corinthians had. And that worldview problem, was messing up their marriages and their view of singleness and their view of divorce. Now, here's the problem for us in our day and age. We do a few things with passages like this about marriage and divorce. One, uh, some people downplay what Paul says about marriage and divorce and what Jesus says for that matter. And we make excuses for why it seems just way too harsh that Paul would say stuff like that. There's got to be some wiggle room and, oh, really, Jesus and Paul, like, that's the line that you're going to hold? And, and so many of us will hear passages like 1 Corinthians 7 or Matthew 19 and we'll just go, Ugh, I don't like that very much. And then we downplay it. Then the other half of you will attempt to make these passages say things that they actually don't say. And you will draw lines in the sand around marriage and divorce and remarriage that actually aren't in here. So that's the problem. So I, I joked with someone. I said, this week, I'm just going to upset everybody <laughs> because we do that. We fall into usually one of two camps. Either it's like, ah, I don't think that applies to us, or we're like, this is what it says, and it actually doesn't say that. So let me give you uh, some, some things to consider as we work our way through chapter 7. Paul is not giving a marriage manual for every possible scenario related to your marriage. Paul is not giving us, here are my systematic thoughts fully on marriage. He doesn't doesn't do that in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is answering a specific question the Corinthians had about sexuality and marriage. And in his answer, he lays out principles for, for marriage. But this is not everything that the Bible has to say about marriage. So keep that in mind, right? Don't make the passage say things that it doesn't say. Or on the other side, don't just ignore the passage because you don't like what it says. We want to know what are some principles that God is laying out for us. So here's my goal: I want to work through verses one through sixteen this morning, and Paul is going to address four different scenarios, four types of people. One, he's going to address married couples. Um, Two, he he addresses singles. Um, Three, he addresses divorce among Christians. And then fourthly, he, he addresses divorce uh, when there's a mixed marriage. One person is a believer and one isn't, right? So I think that hits just about everybody in this room, that it applies to us. And so I just want to work through the passage and go, what are some principles that God is giving us on marriage, singleness, and divorce? So starting in verse 1, here is uh, the context of chapter 7. Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, pause. Before all the guys are like, no! Paul is responding to a Corinthian worldview, right? That's why in your Bible, uh, most of them have the quotation marks now concerning about what you wrote. That is what the Corinthians wrote Paul. They said, Paul, is it true that it's, it's, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the question that Paul's responding to in chapter 7. He's going, let me, let, me, let me respond to what you wrote to me. And so think about this worldview. There were some in Corinth who had the worldview that it, it, you should just not have sex ever for any reason, even if you're married. It's just bad, right? And so they're asking Paul, is that true? Is it good for us to just abstain from all sex? Now, let me remind you of the dualistic... Gnostic worldview that was going on in Corinth, right? From last week, they had this kind of dualistic uh, thinking where the body was bad and your spirit was good. You're kind of split into two and the world is split into two. Material stuff, ah, that's of no consequence. It's bad anyways. God's gonna destroy it. The spiritual realm is all that matters, right? That was their worldview. And so last week we saw that this was leading some people in the church of Corinth to just do whatever they wanted with their bodies, So if I go visit a prostitute, who cares? My body means nothing anyways. God's going to destroy it. I can do that. And yet there were others who had the same worldview, body, spirit, split, that thought, well, anything related to the body is just unworthy of us spiritual people, right? Right? Uh, And so dualistic thinking, it leads either to license, where you just go, I can do whatever I want, or it leads to uh, asceticism, which is basically, I'm going to just deny myself everything related to the body. And so some people in Corinth thought that sex of any kind was bad. And discouraging sex, even for married husbands and wives, you you shouldn't even have sex with your spouse, it's bad. And they were advocating for strict sexual abstinence. They said it's mandatory for Christian life. If you want a higher spiritual path, you'll deny yourself that. And they were arguing abstinence within marriage. And, and some were arguing, you can, you can kind of glean from how Paul responds, some were arguing that actually since it's too difficult to abstain when, when you get married, well, then you should just get divorced, if, if no sex is a higher spiritual life and you're married and you're tempted, just get divorced then. Singleness is the way to go. And especially if you are a, a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, they're going to pollute your spirit. So for sure divorce them, right? You're a, a higher spiritual being now. And so this is bleeding into their relationships, this Gnostic, dualistic worldview. One scholar, I really appreciated it, he kind of fleshed out what he thought the Corinthian view might have been. He said, maybe, maybe again, take it with a grain of salt, this is just one guy's musing, maybe this is what the Corinthians were saying to Paul, Paul, since you yourself are unmarried and are not actively seeking marriage, and since you've denounced sexual immorality in your letter to us... Is it not so that one is better off not to have sexual intercourse at all? After all, in the new age, which we've already entered by the Spirit, there's neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Why should we not be as the angels now? Besides, since the body counts for nothing, if some wish to fulfill physical needs, then there's always the prostitutes. Like you, can, you, can, you can see that that's probably not far off of the Corinthian thinking. Paul, you're single. You're not trying to be remarried. So sexual immorality is really bad, so shouldn't we just abstain altogether? Shouldn't we just live as single people, divorce our spouses, divorce our unbelieving spouses, and just live like you, Paul, single and abstaining? So for the rest of the chapter, Paul's responding to verse 1. Right? I I want you to remember that. What is the context of chapter 7? Paul didn't sit down and say, let me write my marriage book. He's he's responding to that worldview, this kind of twisted worldview that is affecting their marriages and affecting their singles as well. And so Paul is going to go through and address each one of these groups related to verse 1. So firstly, Paul addresses uh, uh, sex within the context of marriage. So he continues in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to her, his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Praise God. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. So, Paul's first group that he's addressing is married couples. And again, remember, there was thinking in the Corinthian church even if you're married, don't have sex with your spouse, it's bad. And Paul is addressing that. He says, no, in verse 2, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he gives the reason why. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Now, some have read this and have accused Paul of having a really low view of marriage. Right? It's just because of sexual temptation that we get married, Paul? Really? I should, because of... Sexual immorality, a man should have his own wife and a wife should have her uh, husband. Is that all you think of marriage, Paul? But Paul's not arguing why marriage is a good thing. He's arguing why married partners should not withdraw from conjugal relations. And the word to have in verse 2, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, that word is used all throughout Scripture as a euphemism for sexual relations. So he's not saying the only reason you should get married is because you're tempted sexually. He's talking about you should have a regular, healthy sex life with your spouse because it's one of the ways that you deal with the temptation to sexual immorality. Right? Even in chapter 5, what does Paul say? Um, uh, When he hears about this kind of sin going on, he says a man has his father's wife. He's talking about sex. So that's what Paul is saying. It's good for a man to have his wife and a wife to have her husband because it is one of the ways that you can battle sexual temptation. Because of all of the sexual morality in the world, you should have a a healthy Sex life. Verse 3, Paul says, husbands, give your conjugal rights to your wife and wife to your husband. Verse 4, the wife doesn't have authority over her body. Her husband does. Likewise, the husband, you don't have authority over your body. Your wife does. So notice that there's, there's actually mutuality when it comes to a husband and a wife's sex life. And what Paul is getting at is that you are one flesh now. Meaning you don't own your body anymore. Your spouse does, and vice versa. And and the verb there about, you know, the, the body belongs to your husband or the authority, and vice versa, it's exousia, and it means that your spouse has rights over your body. They have exclusive claim to it. So what Paul is saying to this first group of people is sex within marriage is good. It's blessed by God. There are relational and spiritual benefits, and one practical benefit is that a healthy sex life reduces the temptation to engage in sexual sin. It doesn't remove it, but it reduces it. That's why Paul says in verse 5, don't deprive each other. except perhaps, Paul says, for a very limited time to pray. But you, you need to agree about that. But then, what does Paul say? Come together again so that Satan doesn't tempt you. So can we just you know, press pause here and, and come over here for a second for a really um, key point of application for husbands and wives? Husbands and wives, you are not allowed to withhold sex as a way to punish your spouse or to get back at them. Paul says, do not deprive each other. Don't Do that. Don't play that game where I'm going to just hold out and now I'm punishing him or her because I didn't like that thing they did and, well, if you want sex again, well, you got to do what I, Paul says, don't do that. Don't play that game. Don't deprive each other. Paul says, if you're going to agree to to have a period of abstinence in your marriage, you both have to agree on it, which every husband here is like, don't worry about that. I don't agree to that. But he says, if, you, if you, you have to agree on it to go, you know what? We want to focus time to fasting and praying in our spiritual lives. We're going to take a week and just be abstinent for the week or two or whatever it is. Paul says, you must agree. And he says, but do it for short periods of time. Why? So that you don't lose self-control and you're not tempted to sin in that. So here's, what ama- here's what's so practical about the Bible and amazing. Your abstinence in your marriage for spiritual reasons, right? If you go, well, I just feel like we need to just to refrain from sexual relations in our marriage just to focus on God. Paul is saying it actually may not bring you closer to God. It actually will make you more vulnerable to Satan, So don't just kind of, with this spiritual, I must pursue higher spirituality, and therefore, Paul says, yeah, don't do that. If you want to just take a break uh, and have some abstinence in your marriage for a little bit to pray together, fine, but don't make it for a long period of time. Come together again so that you're not tempted. And then he says in in verse 6 that this is a concession, not a command. What is? What is a, a concession, not a command? The fact that couples would take periods of abstinence to, to focus on spiritual things. Paul says that's not a command. You don't have to do that. I'll allow it. I'll, I'll permit you to do that. But it's not necessary for you to be super spiritual to refrain from sex within your marriage. Paul says it's, it's not a command. So you have to understand Paul is way ahead of his time here. Um, People in the ancient world only viewed sex as for the sake of procreation or as a pleasurable experience for men that women provided. And Paul here is completely revolutionary, saying actually sex is meant to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife, and there's mutuality You don't own your body, your spouse does, and vice versa. It's not just for a man's pleasure, it's for a husband and a wife's pleasure. Uh, Many scholars actually think that Paul is the first person in the ancient world to have this viewpoint. They go, this is revolutionary that an apostle would say, sex is not just for procreation and not just for a man, it's to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife together. So Paul says, don't deprive each other. So, right, Paul's answering the question, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, even within marriage? Paul says, no, of course not. Enjoy husbands and wives. Enjoy the gift that God has given you. Don't deprive each other. Now, Paul then moves on to address singles. Okay, so the church could go, okay, well, sex within marriage is fine, but it's probably way better and way more spiritual to just be single and not have sex, right, Paul? Like, if those married couples have to do that, that's fine, but it's like if we're single and we stay single, then we're kind of like, whoo, we're up here now. So he says this in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. He's talking about being single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul says, I wish that you could all be like me. We know, and and there's debate, was Paul previously married and then his wife left him, or was he always single? We just don't really know for sure. But we know that Paul is, in this moment, he's single. And so he says, "I, I wish you guys could all be like me and just remain single. But, Paul says, but it's a gift. It's a gift from God. Some are gifted to be married. Some are gifted to be single. And Paul says to the unmarried and to the widows, those who have lost their spouses, uh, he says, I I think it's good if you can remain single like I am. But if you can't exercise self-control, well, then it's better to just get married. It's better to be married than to try and pursue what you think is a higher spiritual calling and just trying to white-knuckle it and burning with passion. Paul says, just get married then. Right? Singleness is not a step above getting married. He says it's a gift. God calls some people to be single, and God calls some people to be married. But why would Paul say that he wished that everyone could be single like him? I think singleness allows more service to the gospel. You can actually concentrate all your energy on gospel proclamation rather than the distraction of a partner. Now, don't get mad that I called them a distraction. Paul says that later on. He says, you know, a married person has a lot more distractions than an unmarried person. Right? Your family, your wife, your children, your husband. You have all of these extra responsibilities. Paul is saying a single person doesn't have those. They can pour way more energy into the gospel. But Paul does concede that it just doesn't work for everyone. For some, the desire to have a partner is a distraction from the gospel priority. And, and so what you need to hear if you're single, having sexual desires and wanting to get married is not a sin. It's not that you're going, oh, I'm, I'm now going to be lesser on the spiritual levels because I had to get married because I couldn't control myself. No, Paul says singleness and married, marriage, they're both gifts from God. One is not more holy than the other. And Paul, we're going we're to leave that there because Paul, later on in chapter 7, he's going to dive way more into the topic of singleness. But, but he's addressing their concerns, right? If all sex is bad, well, then it's better if we all just stay single, right? That's more spiritual. And Paul says, no, it's not. Singleness is a gift from God. Marriage is a gift from God. Thirdly, Paul talks to those... Married couples who are maybe toying with the idea of divorce, right? Because if if marriage is, uh, or or if abstinence is preferred spiritually, right, that's their worldview, and I'm married, well, I want to be a deeper spiritual person. Maybe I should just divorce my spouse and be single like Paul is. And so what is Paul's answer to that? Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, Paul is talking about divorce among believers, and we know that because the very next section he talks about divorce where someone's a believer and someone isn't. So here you have two Christians, two followers of Jesus. What do we do? Do do we get divorced? So what does Paul mean in the brackets, right, where he says, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord? What Paul is saying is that Jesus has already taught on this, and Paul's view is not any different from Jesus, right? Jesus in Matthew 19, when he's asked about divorce, he says that uh, a man and a woman, this is my paraphrase, should not get divorced except for cases of sexual morality, or else those two people will commit adultery. And so when Paul says to the married believers, I'm giving this charge, well actually it's not me, it's Jesus because my opinion lines up with what Jesus said. He says uh, a married Christian couple should not get divorced. The wife should not separate from her husband, the husband should not divorce his wife. Now those two words, there's no difference between separation and divorce in the biblical world. So, you know, in our day and age, we have made them different. Well, you can separate and live apart and blah, 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 and then separation is usually just the next step towards divorce. When the, the words are different, but there's no such thing as separation in the ancient world. Separation is divorce. That's how they viewed it. So it's just different words to describe the same thing. Paul is saying the wife should not divorce her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. Now, in the ancient world, there were, there were different rules about divorce. The Roman view, uh, divorce was very frequent and very easily accessible, especially for a man, but Roman law permitted either a husband or a wife to divorce their spouse for any reason. Um, in the Jewish world, in the Shema, which was kind of a Jewish uh, sect or a way of thinking, the Shema was divorce is only for cases of unfaithfulness. And then you had the Hillel, which was another Jewish camp, and they uh, allowed divorce for anything. It was actually recorded uh, in some of their writings, speaking of a husband, he may divorce her even if she spoiled the dish for him. So if was like your wife burned dinner, divorce. That's how easy it was for those groups of people. So Paul's teaching goes against so much of the easy divorce of that day and of, of our day. Jesus said, you must not, you may not divorce except for cases of sexual immorality, and what Paul is saying here is two believers, two followers of Jesus should not divorce. And if someone does, Paul goes on to say, well, then that individual must remain unmarried or go and be reconciled to their spouse. So notice, Paul's saying, you know, here's the command, don't get divorced. Should you choose to disobey the command of God, then here are your options. You can stay single or you can pursue reconciliation with your spouse. I want you to see this because notice that Paul doesn't say, look at, look at verse 10 or verse 11, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, Paul doesn't say, kick her out of the church and never speak to her Again. He doesn't say that, right? I think, here's what I said at the beginning. We've taken divorce and we've made it the worst possible thing that an individual can do. And if you do that, then we're, we're cutting off all communication. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, okay, if you choose to walk down that road, here are your options now. You can remain single or you can be reconciled to your spouse. Can they still come to the church? Paul doesn't address that. Can we still have fellowship with them? Paul doesn't address that. Don't make the text say things it doesn't say. Now, I need to, as, a, as an aside, I know so many questions come up, so many, that Paul doesn't address in this passage. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't address them, but the Bible isn't explicit. What about abuse? What about, what about a husband that is beating his wife every single day? Would we as Christians say, Tough luck. Paul never talked about it. What about a spouse that is a, a, addicted to drugs and is ruining their family and it's not safe for their kids to be home and they've lost all their money? We would, just, we would, would we say, "Oh, sorry, the Bible doesn't talk about that. Got to stay with them. Right? There's certain, there's certain topics that are just not addressed. Paul doesn't address those. And they're complicated. That we as Christians need to wade into with godly wisdom that Paul and and, and the Bible gives to us. But Paul nowhere gives a black and white answer for what about this? And what about this case? And what about this case? Paul, Paul doesn't give us answers to every single scenario. And so as followers of Jesus, with fear and trembling, filled with gentleness and grace, we enter into those scenarios going, okay, what would the Lord have us do? But here is what Paul is saying. He's saying, above all, two believers, two followers of Jesus who love the gospel and whose lives are dedicated to Jesus as Lord, you should be able to be reconciled. And, and as harsh as it sounds, Paul says, you should not pursue divorce. And if you do, you should remain single or be reconciled. See, notice, though, like how Paul's addressing that question. Should we just divorce our spouses? He goes, no, you shouldn't. In the easy divorce culture of his day, it would be really simple for for couples who are married to go, well, abstinence is better. We're more holy. Let's just get divorced then. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Be reconciled to each other. Be restored to one another. Um, Lastly, last group of people Paul addresses Remember the question Paul's answering. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Paul has answered, well, no, you don't need to remain celibate in marriage. Sex is a great gift from God for husbands and wives. No, you don't need to just divorce your spouse because you want to be abstinent. And no, singleness is not superior or more holy than being married. Lastly, it's like they've asked him, well, what do I do if I'm a follower of Jesus and my spouse isn't? Like, am I being tainted by them spiritually? Should I just divorce them because they they don't follow Jesus like I do? Here's what Paul says. To the rest I say, verse 12, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Notice that Paul says again, to the rest I say, and then in brackets, I, not the Lord. What what does he mean by that? He means that Jesus specifically never addressed this topic. Jesus never said, well, here's what you do if one of you loves God and one of you doesn't. So Paul's saying, I'm kind of wading into this territory. Jesus never commented on this. Now, that doesn't mean that it's any less authoritative Right, Paul, as an apostle, he has the authority to to say, thus saith this is God's command. But all he's saying is, well, Jesus never addressed this. Jesus never talked about married couples where one's a believer and one isn't. So here's another aside, okay? (laughs) You, You can see just kind of the mess of the situation when one spouse is a believer and one isn't. So to all the singles in the room... My, my greatest advice to you to avoid this, don't marry someone who doesn't love Jesus. Um, I did young adult ministry for years. And young adult ministry is interesting because uh, I was married at the time, but you can just like feel the tension of all these young adults like, oh, I love I need a husband, I need a wife and there's just, you can cut the tension with a knife right? and they're all coupling up and things like that and so I would talk with different people who had started dating people and oh Andrew I just started dating this new guy and he's amazing uh, and I would go great, does he love Jesus? Well I mean he's just like oh he's so great and he loves me so well and he takes care of me great, does he love Jesus? Oh, I mean our, we're so in sync and all of our uh, likes and dislikes are the same and he's so good looking great, does he love jesus all that other stuff pales in comparison who is his lord but we do that don't we well is it that important yes second corinthians 6 god commands us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers so you will save yourself a lot of heartache if the main box that your potential partner has to check is do they love and serve Jesus? So clearly there were some in Corinth who the gospel had awakened their hearts and they had become believers, but their spouses hadn't. And so what do you do? right? I hear the gospel, I surrender to Jesus, and yet my spouse says, nah, I'm okay, I don't want anything to do with that. Should I divorce them? Paul says in verse 12, nope, don't divorce her, don't divorce him. And then in verse 14 he says, actually your unbelieving spouse is made holy because of you. So what in the world does that mean? <laughs> and your children. Here's what it can't mean. It can't mean that people are sanctified and saved by like proxy. Right? Just because I'm being sanctified doesn't mean that my spouse and kids are are holy because I'm holy and God's working in my life. We, we know that doesn't work like that, right? God sanctifies each individual person. But here, I think, is what Paul is getting at, is that if you are a follower of Jesus and your spouse and maybe your kids aren't, your home will now be filled with the influence of the gospel. I mean, your unbelieving spouse and kids are going to hear about Jesus all the time now, hopefully, Right? Um, One scholar wrote this, he said, continuing the marriage, this between a, a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, accords with God's design for marriage, and it should be hallowed as a sphere in which God's holiness and his transforming power operate, Right? Paul says, who knows? Like You might end up, through your influence in the home, you might end up saving your spouse. And so he says, it's like they're, they're, in this, they're, they're in the bubble of your home and you are holy and being sanctified and it kind of affects them. So no, you shouldn't just divorce them because they don't believe. But in verse 15, Paul says, he gives this caveat. However, if an unbelieving partner wants to separate, he means divorce. He says, you as a believer are not required to fight and hold on to that marriage. If your unbelieving partner says, I'm done, I can't handle this, I don't want to be here, I'm leaving, we're getting divorced, Paul says, you can let it be so. You are not enslaved. You're not obligated to seek reconciliation if you're abandoned by your unbelieving spouse. God's called you to peace. You can be at peace if your unbelieving spouse wants a divorce. You haven't sinned by allowing that to happen. But he says, but you as a believer, you don't pursue divorce with your unbelieving spouse. Who knows? Maybe God's going to use you to save them. Now, right away, right, there's questions that come up that Paul doesn't answer. Well, if I'm abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, am I allowed to get remarried? He doesn't say. And so that's one of those areas that we wade into with godly wisdom and with grace and with gentleness going, what would the Lord have for you in this situation? So I hope you can see, I mean, there are some significant worldview issues going on in Corinth. And their dualistic line of thinking is affecting their view of marriage, their view of singleness, their view of sex, their view of divorce. And I think that there's principles in this for, for us as well, depending on the stage of life that you're in. You're, it, it affects our view of a healthy sex life within marriage, right? The, the mutuality of, I'm going to meet my, my spouse's needs sexually, Right? Listen, this goes. This flies in the face of our world where sex has become about me and my needs and you need to fulfill me. And, and, and the Bible says, no, 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 it's actually mutual. It's between you and as husband and wife. Fulfill each other's needs. Stop thinking about yourself. Think about them. Um, this passage should ho- hopefully give us a proper view of singleness and marriage. Listen, as, as Christians, as churches, we've done a terrible job of this where we go, oh, you're single, ooh. And it's like you're cursed by God. Paul would say, no. If you are single, maybe God has called you with that gift so that you can be on mission in his kingdom. You're not cursed because you're single. Singleness, gift. Marriage, gift. And then I think it gives us some principles for a proper view of divorce among believers And between mixed marriages where one spouse is a believer and one isn't. Like I said at the beginning, some of us, we find Paul's words and Jesus' words about marriage and divorce just way too harsh. We just go, oh man, I don't like that. And then we try and and we find ways around it. And then on the flip side, there's many of us who make divorce the worst possible sin you could ever possibly commit And we come down so hard on people and we reject them and we banish them from our churches because how dare you do that? Neither of those responses are appropriate. And Paul doesn't offer a one-size-fits-all approach. Notice that he doesn't answer every single question we have about all of the the possible scenarios. He argues with spiritual insight, but it's like Paul knows, man, life is complex. Jesus never had to address mixed marriages between believers and unbelievers. It's messy. It's complex. But here's what I want to leave you with, above all. So if you're married in the room, and you might find this weird to hear your pastor say this, would you pursue a healthy sex life in your marriage? Don't deprive one another. Right? Don't play those games where you, well, I'm going to withhold and then if he doesn't do what I like or she doesn't do it, then I'm going to be angry. Just enjoy this incredible gift that God's given you with one of the benefits being it is It is a help in the fight against sexual temptation. It doesn't remove it, but man, it helps. Um, If you're married and your your marriage is on the rocks and and both of you claim to follow Jesus, I I would just encourage you, before you believe the culture's view that it's about your entitlement and your freedom and your this and your that, and we're just going to divorce Would you pursue reconciliation? Call a counselor, get a mediator, say, we have to figure this out. We both claim to love and serve Jesus. We can do this. We can be restored. Um, If you're here and you're married and your spouse is not a Christian, I want you to hear it. Don't feel like you're less than spiritually. But I would encourage you, make your home a place that is just drenched in the gospel. Paul Paul would say, who knows? Maybe God's going to use you to save your spouse. And if you're single, maybe you can just rest in the season that God has you in and use it to pour into the kingdom of God. But I think above all, all of us, whether you're married, single, divorced, separated, whatever it is, we need much wisdom and grace as we navigate the complexities of life. As I read this passage, I just went man, because of sin, life is just so complex now. And it's like, Lord, have mercy on us as we wade into the, just the mess that we make and that we would have gentleness and grace and truth and mercy for one another as we go. We've got to navigate all of these hard situations. And above all, I mean, we just need to cry out to Jesus for wisdom, don't we? So Father, I just thank you for your word. Um, God, I'm just amazed week after week after week of how practical the book of First Corinthians is. I mean, it speaks to like, so many things that we deal with in our own culture. Um, and I, I know that a passage like ours this morning, it affects everyone in the room, because either we're married or we're single. Or some of us are divorced. Some of us have unbelieving spouses. Some of us, uh, our, our parents got divorced and it really impacted our lives. And so God, I think we see your heart in this passage where your heart is for a husband and a wife to be married until the day that they die or till the day that you return and to enjoy this incredible gift of marriage that you've given us. Uh, When problems arise and sin happens and hurt happens, I think we can see that your heart is that husbands and wives are reconciled and restored to one another. And yet we also see in this passage just the complexities of life since the fall. And God, you give or, or Paul gives such good advice for all of these different scenarios and yet he doesn't answer every scenario because above all Jesus we just need much wisdom oh God would you give us mercy as we wade into just these complex situations and seek to speak truth and yet with gentleness and love and grace and mercy So God, I I pray that we as a church would just be a place that holds up and honors marriage um, and singleness, both as gifts from you, that we uh, who call North Peace home would say, no, I'm not going to just divorce my spouse. I want to pursue reconciliation. I want to be restored to them. That those who call this church their home and their spouses are not believers, that we would come alongside them and go, how can we help and how can we equip you to to bring the gospel into your home. So Jesus, just thank you that you have given us your spirit to help us as we navigate life until your return. And so God, I just thank you for your word, and I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would just continue to do the work in our hearts as we leave this place. And I just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.